Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, it is fitting this morning that the one uh, to whom we ask the help to be given from the Holy Spirit, he is the one about whom this sermon is. And, and so, Father, I do ask for your help uh, as I preach this morning, that uh, the Holy Spirit would is, is the course to focus, but that it would also shine the light on the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ, and so that we could see how all of this, all of this fits, and that Christ would be magnified. And so I ask for your help as, as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen. From the first verse of the Bible, we can see that one God created all things. As Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As you continue to read through Genesis 1 and see all that God created, you eventually arrive at verse 26. If you skim by verse 26, you may miss a small two-letter word that is there. And that word is us. U-S, us. This is what verse 26 says. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Now, did not verse 1 say that God is one? How can it now say in verse 26, let us make man instead of let me make man? Is God more than one? This is the first indication in the Bible that God is a trinity. One essence and three equally divine persons. So as you read verse 26, it forces you to go back to verse 2. Verse 2 says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What we, what we find here is a specific mention of this person of the Trinity. And that is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is directly involved along with the Father and the Son in the creation of all things. And throughout the Old Testament, we see the Spirit mentioned on numerous occasions as, as he helps the people of God, the Israelites. In the New Testament, the Spirit takes on a different role. He is sent to the earth uh, to, to help the church. And, and, he, and he comes to the earth as the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus, ascends to heaven. And, and we just read that here, that Jesus said, when I go away, then the Helper, the Spirit, will come to the earth. And so the Spirit comes to the earth to, the earth to build the church by working through believers, by working through you and me. This morning, we are going to see how the Spirit applies the finished work of Christ, or what we call the gospel. We are going to begin by reading Article 6 of the Evangelical Free Church, Statement of Faith. And, and you'll see this on the back of your bulletin. Article 6, the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit 
in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. He convicts the world of its guilt. He regenerates sinners, and in him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. He also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. So the big idea this morning, the proposition, is we believe that the Holy, or sorry, we believe that the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. And there are four ways how that I'm going to show you from Scripture this morning as to how we believe the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. The first way how is by glorifying the Son. By glorifying the Son. This is what the first section of Article 6 says. The Holy Spirit, in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit has been called the forgotten God. Uh, he was called that by, by Francis Chan, who, a best-selling Christian author. Uh, his book was entitled The Forgotten God, and it's about the Holy Spirit. And, and what he said is true. It, it's often, we often talk about the Father, we often talk about the Son, Jesus, but the Holy Spirit tends to be the person of the Trinity that often gets left out of our conversations. The Spirit would like this, actually, probably, too, because he wants to draw the attention away from himself and to another. His goal and his purpose is to draw attention to Jesus. And I say that on the authority of Scripture. If you look at John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, and these are the words of Jesus, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So we see here that those words, he will glorify me. And what Jesus is pointing ahead to here is, is Pentecost, when the Spirit would come. This is when Jesus would ascend to heaven and the helper of the Spirit would come to the earth. And so the Spirit's purpose, his, his work, is to shine the spotlight on Christ. What's interesting is that if, if, you look at the, if you look at the history of the Bible, if you look at the history of the church, men are mentioned in many more places than women are. Now, th there are certain places in the Bible where you see Esther and Ruth and Mary, where, where women are at, at a central place in, in those stories. Um, but, as, but as you read the Bible, and even as you look at church history, uh, what you see is, is that men are mentioned. And so people ask, well, where, where are the women? And women are really the unsung heroes of, of, of the biblical stories and, and of church history and, and of our lives. And I could speak from my own experience. You know, you know that, that saying that, said, that says, uh, behind every good man is a great woman. And it, it, it's so true. Uh, and many, many of the women in our church have been reading uh, these, about these wives of these great men of God, like, Su like Susanna Spurgeon, the wife of, of Charles Spurgeon, or uh, Elizabeth Edwards, or Elizabeth Elliot, uh, th these great women of God that, 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 uh, that did so many great things for, for God's kingdom on earth. 
And without them, we wouldn't know about these men because, because of the role that they played. And, and if you look at the Bible, what's interesting is that in Genesis chapter 2, uh, God says when he creates women that they will be the helpers, the helper to men. In uh, and, and, and our society today, many people will be offended by that uh, because, because of the, the feminist movement. But godly women embrace that and say, you know, I am going to, to help my husband achieve as many things as he can to, to help him do his ministry for God. And, and that is their ministry. What's interesting is if you look at the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. Uh, you know, he, he is the one, he's kind of behind the scenes, but he's every bit as important as the Son. He, and he's equally God. The Son is God and the Spirit is God. And he is the one who shines the spotlight on Christ. We would not see Jesus the way that we do, and, and as clearly as we do, his glory, if it was not for the Holy Spirit. So you see that, that, that connection. And I, so I, I think that's maybe a little bit of an analogy from our everyday experience as we look at the role of men and women, to, to see this relationship between the Spirit and the Son. And this is, this is a role, by the way, that the Holy Spirit embraces, that he loves. Uh, and, and it's a role that, that women who, who love God and who are following God really embrace as they help their husbands. So the focus of the gospel is, is on the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son, as he accomplishes, as he accomplishes redemption, when he comes to the earth to die on the cross, as he lived a perfect life, he dies a sacrificial death on the cross, he's raised from the dead on the third day. And so the Holy Spirit is bringing attention to not only the, the, the person of the Son, but what he accomplished. And, and the Spirit loves this role that he has. The Spirit shines light on the one who accomplishes the gospel. So the first way that we believe that the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit is by glorifying the Son. The second way how the Holy Spirit applies the gospel is by calling sinners to repent, by calling sinners to repent. Look with me, please, at the second section of Article 6, where it says very briefly that the Spirit convicts the world of its guilt. The Bible makes it clear that every person on planet Earth has the same fundamental problem. We are sinners at the core. We are rebels against the Holy God. We need a rescue. We need a savior to come in and, and save the day. And deep down, we all know this. We all know this to be true. And the only way that you can come to deny that is if you suppress it, if you suppress that, that reality that in your heart you have offended a holy God because of your sinfulness. And God has given us something that tells us that this is true. He has given us the, our conscience. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says that for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When we do something wrong, we feel bad about it. There's, there's a reason you feel this. And it's because you have a conscience. There's this moral law 
that's written on your heart, that's been given to you by God, that when you do something, it says you're not supposed to do that. You should not do that because you have a conscience. And there is an objective morality that God has set up. But there is another influence besides our conscience that tells us when we do right or wrong. And that is the Holy Spirit. John 16.8 says that when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit convicts people of their sins. Not only does the conscience do this, but the, but the, second, or sorry, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit, does this. And as the Spirit does this, he is pointing sinners to the only one who can save them. He is pointing them to Jesus. He is calling sinners to repent and to believe in Jesus. In verse 9 of John 16, it says, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So, so the Spirit convicts them of their sin because people know that they're sinners, and they know this, and yet they refuse to believe in Jesus. And so he convicts them, and he says, you need to believe in him. And so he points them to Jesus to believe. And he's their only hope. And as the Spirit convicts people, he finds resistance. People don't, in their natural state, just come to believe in Christ. They need something to happen to them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you talk about spiritual things with someone who, who's still in their natural state, who, who, is, who has not been born again, who has not been given new life, spiritual things are folly to them. They don't make sense. They don't accept them. Peop and people sin because they want to. Nobody, nobody forces anyone to sin. People sin because it feels good. And when the Spirit convicts sinners, he, he is an unwelcome guest. But this changes when the Spirit changes someone from the inside out. And at that point, someone who was once in their natural, sinful, rebellious state becomes born again, becomes alive. And when that takes place, the person becomes receptive to the Spirit. And the Spirit's no longer an unwelcome guest, but a, a welcomed guest, a, a companion, a friend. The Spirit changes someone from the inside out. And this leads us to our third way how the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. And that is that the Spirit transfers sinners into God's family. He applies the gospel by transferring sinners into God's family. Look with me, please, at the third section of Article 6 of the Statement of Faith. The Spirit regenerates sinners, and in Him they are baptized into union with Christ and adopted as heirs in the family of God. When a person believes in Jesus, who is it that makes him or her a new creation? It's the Spirit. The Spirit does that work. And this is what we call the new birth. 
being born again or regenerated. All those terms mean the same thing. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, describes what it looks like and what is taking place when one becomes born again. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will, will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So the spirit takes your spiritually dead soul and he gives you new life. And this picture of water cleansing your dark soul is, is what Ezekiel gives us. In John 3, 5, Jesus is thinking about this passage and referring to this passage in Ezekiel when he, when he has this conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He was someone who was supposed to know this. And, and this is what Jesus says in John 3, 5. That, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is describing the spiritual cleansing that takes place in your soul when the Spirit gives you new birth. And the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of being brought uh, to life in Ephesians 2, 5. 2, 4, and 5, when he says, But God, being, being rich in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And you become a new creation. This is, this is another illustration that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. Has this happened to you? I ask you today. I, I, know, I know many of you, and I know many of you, this has happened to you, where you have, you are following Christ. You are alive. You have been given new, new birth through the Spirit. My question is to those of you who maybe don't understand, has this happened to you? And if it hasn't, you can believe in Christ, and the Spirit will do this work if your belief is genuine. He will give you life. So the Holy Spirit, he, he doesn't just stop at giving you new life. He, he does something else, too. He also un unites you to Jesus. He unites you to Christ. Throughout Paul's letters, you, you will see very often, he uses phrases like with Christ or in Christ. And, and when, he, when he uses these, this language, what he's referring to is union with Christ. He unites you to Jesus. Now the two examples that I just mentioned, Ephesians 2.5 and 2 Corinthians 5.17, when this new birth happens, you, you are in Christ. You are with Christ. And this takes place the moment you become born again. To be united to Christ means that you are forever tied to your Savior. You're forever tied to Him. As Romans 6.4 says, uh, that you, are die, you have died with Christ, you are buried with Christ, and because of that, you are raised with Christ, and you now walk in newness of life. That's what Romans 
6.4 says, One day you will also be raised from the dead, the same way he was, with, with a glorified body. The glorified body that he had when he was raised from the dead and that he still has and always will have. The Spirit not only unites you to Christ, but he also transfers you into God's family, where you actually become a, a child of God. It's, it's, it's a common misconception that you hear at some churches even, where they call everyone a child of God. That's not, Scripture doesn't call everyone a child of God. It, it does call everyone an image bearer of God, but it does not call everyone a child of God. You become a child of God through believing in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit transfers you into the family of God. And that's an important stress I want to make, that you, you need to understand that. And the Father has an eternal inheritance that belongs to Jesus. It, it's an inheritance that, that he earned and, and that the Father is, is glad to give it to him. And what is amazing is that not only does Jesus receive this inheritance, but we get to share in this inheritance. And, and this comes because we are adopted into God's family. There's, there's a few scripture passages that, that describe this. Uh, Galatians, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 says that for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ. You see that picture? The Spirit brings you into this family, the family of God, and, and you become an heir with Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, it says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father so you are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through god okay and when i say when i say the word heir it's not e-r-r-o-r it's h-e-r-i okay you are you inherit this it belongs to you okay i want to you probably you probably knew that but i'm just being clear um, so it is right to call you a child of God once this has taken place within you. Uh, 1 John 3.2 says that you are a child of God now. This isn't just a future reality when you go to heaven. It says that we are God's children now and you forever have this title. And you become a child of God through adoption. Uh, many, some of you came to church today wondering if, if I was even going to be here because Brianna, of course, is uh, our, our due date for our baby is on Tuesday. And, and so it, the baby could really come any time. And of course, what we think is, a, is our baby girl, um, she is going to, she is, she is it's our biological child. Uh, she's not our adopted child. She's our, she's, she came from us directly. And what's interesting is that the, the, the picture that the Bible gives about Jesus is that Jesus is kind of like the biological child. Obviously, he, he's, he's existed forever, so in that way it doesn't fit. But he kind of is. He's, he's the natural heir you know, to the throne. And we're not natural heirs to the throne. We, we are adopted 
and, and we are brought into this family, and, and we are heirs along with Christ. And what's interesting is that God calls us his, his children. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18 says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't it amazing that the creator of the universe is pleased to call you as his children, as sons and daughters? So God is our father, and you know what? Jesus is our brother. It, Romans 8.29 says that Jesus is our brother. That might seem sound strange to say it, but it is. It, the scripture says so. He is our brother. So in this way, the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. And his, his work is, is, is so important. And we don't even realize all this has happened to us. We don't realize that this is the place that we hold in Christ. But it is, because the scripture says so. So, it, ponder this today. I mean, think about that you belong to this family. That's not something we, we often think about. And we, we don't think about this future inheritance, that we are heirs with Christ. We don't, we don't think about this day. At least I don't. I, I, I need to think about this more, and we all do too. And, and ponder this reality, and, and, and give the glory to God for, for this great plan that he has for you. Now, that's the third way how that the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. The fourth way how is by empowering believers toward godliness. The Spirit empowers believers toward godliness. Okay, this is our last little section of the Article 6 of the Free Church Statement of Faith. Uh, so look with me again at this last, the fourth and final section. So the Spirit also indwells, illuminates, guides, equips, and empowers believers for Christ-like living and, and service. One great aspect, or there's many great aspects, but one great aspect of the Christian life is that we are not at this alone. Uh, we are given a friend. We are given the Holy Spirit to go through this with us. Uh, many of you know my marathon story. If, if I would have had someone run with me the last few, the last several miles, I think I might have been able to make it. <laughs> and, and so uh, this picture of the Holy Spirit who can, who can run alongside us, you know, through our life. We, we need someone to go with us, and, and he is the one who goes with us. He is the wind at our back. And he indwells us uh, so that we can grow in holiness. John 14, 17 says specifically that that, that he will dwell in you. And, and since Christ ascended to heaven and the Spirit came, all who have believed in Christ, the Spirit dwells within that person. And we often hear that Jesus is in me. You hear that? Jesus lives in me. And so I'm, I'm going to ask the question here, is, is that accurate? And I'm going to say yes, it is accurate. Because the scripture says it is accurate. Um, te technically, it is the third person of the Trinity who dwells in you, the Holy Spirit. But in, in numerous places in the New Testament, what does it say about the Spirit? It says that he is the Spirit of Christ. So, so by extension, through the Spirit, the Son does dwell in you, because he is the Spirit of Christ. So I think it is, it is correct to say that. Romans 8.11 is, is, is an example of a verse um, that, that describes uh, the, this, uh, the Son 
being in you through the Spirit. Now, the Spirit also gives us illumination uh, to, to see the glory of God. Have you ever wondered why some people don't see the glory of God, but some people do? It's because these people don't have the Spirit, and these people do. The Spirit gives you this illumination to see the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 17 through 19 describes this taking place. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Okay, so, the, so the spirit gives you this, this illumination where you can see the glory of God. As you read the scriptures, he enables you to see something that, that is really there, that, that is explained through the, me when you understand the meaning of the passage, you can see, wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't God great? Isn't, and, and it shows his glory. So the spirit does that within you. Okay, so that, that's, so he, so as it says in the article, the faith here, he illuminates, he does do that. And then the next part is he guides, the Spirit guides us to walk in a holy manner. Galatians 5.16, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. Because if you walk by the Spirit, it says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so we all need to be walking with, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as a Christian, you have a war going on in your heart. And, and it's a war between, between two forces. It's, it's your flesh, which was killed once, once you believe in Christ, and, and it's the Holy Spirit. But you still have this indwelling flesh that wants to rear its ugly head, that wants to make a comeback, that wants to bring you back to your old ways. But the Spirit, what the Spirit does is he, he, is, he is killing that flesh, and it's a team effort between you and the Spirit. A great verse that, that explains what's that this happening is Romans 8.13. It says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so this is a team effort between you and the Holy Spirit. And he, and he is, his plan is to give you victory over your flesh. And, and you, will, you will have that victory as a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, so in that way, the Spirit guides you. He, he is given to you to wage this war. The Spirit also equips believers by, by giving spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, 6 describes, describes him doing this. Uh, when he, he gives, I mean, I'm going to read this here. He gives gifts to people who are in the church. It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So if you, are, if you are here today and you are a follower of Christ, the Spirit has given you a gift. And the purpose of that gift is to build up the church. It's not to show off. It's to help the church. And in that way, you will be helping the church. And you will be advancing the gospel in your community through your fellowship with the church. So, so use your gifts and, and realize that, that the Spirit is the one who equips you 
to carry out this important task. Now, God's plan is also to make you holy. And his plan is not to leave you where you are at. He, he, has, he has saved you and called you to a holy calling, as 2 Timothy 1, uh, 6 through 9 says. He has saved you and called you to a holy calling. And the Holy Spirit performs this important work, too, of making you holy. And there's a fancy theological term that we, that we use. It's sanctification. The Spirit makes you holy. And he gives you power to do this. Acts 1.8 says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Romans 15.13 says that may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Ephesians 3.16 mentions the power that the Spirit gives you in your inner being when it says that um, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this last part here in verse 19 of Ephesians 3, when it says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that's referring to becoming like God. And the way that you become like God is by becoming holy, because God, of course, is holy. And when we believe in Christ, we know that we're not. We're, we're sinners. We need to be made holy. We need to be made like him. And the Spirit is the one who does this. As, this, as Ephesians 3 says, it's his power that does this work in you. And as I already mentioned, the Spirit puts you through a process known as sanctification. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. So the end goal of sanctification is eternal life. The end goal of a continual life of staying away from God is in eternity separate from God in hell. Those, there's, there isn't an in-between. There's, there's two places, that, and there's two paths that you are on right now. One is a path to hell. The other is a path to eternal life. Follow the path of Jesus with the Spirit's help, and you will be on the path to eternal life. So what fruit does the Spirit cause you to bear that helps you in, in this growth of holiness? It, Galatians chapter 5 gives us a list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, perseverance. These are, all quali- these are all traits that you should be possessing and, and if you have the Holy Spirit, you will possess these traits. And people say, well, I know people who don't know God who have these traits. That's not possible. Not, not in a biblical sense. God may give that person enough common grace where, where, some, where some of these things may come out in their life. But to have a person transformed where they're bearing this fruit, you need the Holy Spirit to accomplish that, to, to bear that fruit. And according to 1 Peter 1, 2, it is the sanctification of the Spirit who accomplishes this in you. So he is the source of this, this holiness that is being produced in you as a believer in Christ. And in addition to not only making you holy, God calls each of you to carry out a faithful ministry. 
who, who, who among believers are called in the ministry? It's not just pastors. It's not just missionaries. It's everybody. We're all called to, to ministry. And the Spirit is the one who empowers you, empowers you not only to holy living, but also to carry out this ministry that he has planned for you. Colossians 1, uh, 28 and 29 says that we work with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. So we work with God's energy, and specifically the energy of the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, remember this passage where Paul says, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was in him. It, it was the Spirit's work in Paul's life that enabled him to have a successful ministry. And in any of your ministries, if you are going to, to bear fruit and, and have success and be faithful, it is the Spirit who is going to accomplish that in you. So those are the four ways how that the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. So as we see in the sermon, the Holy Spirit's role in the Trinity is very important. Without the Spirit, we could not be saved. Without the Spirit, we could not grow in holiness. Without the Spirit, we could not fulfill the ministry that God has planned for us. So the Spirit's work is vital. Without Him, we can't do anything. We need Him to be able to follow Christ. And He is the person of the Trinity that, that, that carries out that work. In God's plan of salvation, each person of the Trinity carries out his own specific role. The Father is the architect of the Gospel. The Son accomplishes the Gospel, and the Spirit applies it. The Evangelical Free Church correctly believes that the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we saw four ways how this, the Spirit applies the gospel. The first way how was by glorifying the Son. The second, calling sinners to repent by transferring sinners into God's family and by empowering believers toward godliness. So according to scripture, there are four ways how the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. So remember this important role of the Spirit as you ponder his work and his work in your life. And as you walk by him, you will live a life pleasing to God and fulfill the purposes that he has planned for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Spirit. Thank you for his important work that he carries out and May we be ever mindful of, of this important work that he carries out that without him, Lord, we would fall short. Without him, we couldn't do it. Without him, we couldn't even become a Christian in the first place. Um, without him, we couldn't even we couldn't become a holy person. We, we, we won't become like God without the Spirit. And so he is so important uh, to us. And so... May we not only worship you, the Father, and, and the Son, but we may we worship the Holy Spirit, that we worship the triune God. And, and thank you, Lord, uh, for sending him to build the church, to build this church, to build Mount Free Church. Um, and, and may we, by his power, build a, build a church that is pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.